Ready to get started? Light this bitch. Dark this candle. Um, no. Are you withholding podcasting? I'm done with your silly little show. I'm I'm big enough now. I'm going to do my own show. Wow. I'm going to crush yours. I'm going to be ranked number 30. Really? Bring it on. Today is March 9th, 2015, and this is episode 108 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you? Good. As you said the date, I glanced up at my calendar in my office, and it's still in February, and I didn't realize that at first, so I was very confused. I'm here for you, man. And this just tells me that I uh, clearly am not attending to my you know, office needs enough, because I have to go to an office now, so my home office is deeply neglected. It's falling into disrepair. It is. There's probably cobwebs around here and, you know, sad dust bunnies in the corner, but oh well, such is life. Anyway, how are you? How's things? What's up? What's things, new and exciting? Things are good. Things are good. Talk to Bob a little bit. Got some Bob. Yeah. Yeah, I got a Bob story that goes with uh, one of our stories tonight, so Excellent. that should be is fun. He, uh, is he back from Iran? He was over there doing negotiations, I thought. Yeah, he's back for a little bit. He'll be All headed right. out to North Korea soon, I think. Again? Yeah. Yep. He does get around. And I'm sorry we're a day late on the show. That's my fault. My 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 girlfriend demanded a new stove, and that sort of took precedence. There's a joke in there somewhere. There is. I, I set you up out. for it. I set you up for it. Anyway, uh, yes. Yeah, so we're uh, we're 20 short episodes away from the grand spectacle of episode 128. That's true. So we got to get on the stick and uh, figure out what we're going to do for that. Well, for the moment, I got to get through B-Sides Atlanta. That's right. Oh, yes. So speaking of that, <laughs> B-Sides Atlanta, this Saturday, March, uh, what the heck date is that? March 14th. That's right. Mm-hmm. At, at, in Atlanta. I have no idea where. We'll figure that out later. Um, Mr. Callett will be speaking. Yes. My talk did get accepted. And uh, it's going to be a rough, difficult talk to give and probably not the easiest talk to hear. I'll give that warning for everybody, but I think it's an important talk. And apparently the organizers agreed with me. Yes, yes. Um, So much so that they turned down two of my talks, one of which may very well be the most epic InfoSec talk of all time. I don't think they were prepared to handle that level of epicness. Obviously not. Obviously not. I mean, you well, I mean, truth be told, you have to have special accommodations for that particular kind of talk. And I would actually say that talk is probably best held outdoors, not indoors. But, hmm. you know, there, there you go. Maybe maybe someday we can do one in uh, in Denver at Red Rocks, you know. Sure. Yeah. That'd be cool. It's true. That'd be cool. It's true. All right, so um, so yeah, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer, past, present, or future. Good disclaimer. And before we get off the B-Sides topic, oh yes, uh, there is a B-Sides after party that Jerry and I will be hanging out at. Uh, so for our, well, we're up to 24 listeners now. If any of our 24 listeners are coming to B-Sides Atlanta, 
Uh, of course, you'll see us around the con, but afterwards, come have a beer with us at Gordon Biersch. And again, all of the details are on the B-Sides of the Line on 2015 page. If you find, you know, one of those search engine thingies, you could probably get more details. And I'll, uh, I'll stick it in the show notes. Yes. Too. Just... So we tweeted out uh, that we were going to do something at Twin Peaks. That is no longer happening. Ignore that tweet. Don't take the brown Peaks. LSD. Oh, no, that was something yeah, else. That was different. You're welcome to go to Twin Peaks. Don't get us wrong. And, and you may enjoy it. It might be a fine place. But we will not be there. And that may be why you're going, because we're not there. I don't know. But I'm just saying, if you're going there expecting us to be there, we won't be there. We'll be at where? Gordon Biersch. There you go. And where the hell is that? It's around the corner. It's like across the street and down a little bit. It's So that... Uh, the B-Sides is in Buckhead, uh, for those who know the Elon area. Uh, and Gordon Beerish is also in Buckhead, so it's nearby. You know, there there are tools to find these things. I don't know why, you know, we're wasting precious podcast minutes talking about things that Google Maps could tell you. <sighs> I know, I know. So It's because you started drinking early for the show. I am definitely feeling it. <laughs> and I am stone cold sober, just home from the gym, so... <sighs> They're, you know, Whatever. somehow we'll, we'll make it through. Whatever. <sighs> All right. So I'm hey. going to play some music after we're going to dub in some music. Use your imagination. All right. So, yes, stories. That's why we're here, isn't it? We have a podcast that has stories. Our, our, uh, our first story tonight comes from Ars Technica. And the title is, um, yes. Uber's epic database blunder is hardly an exception. GitHub is awash in passwords. So, and I think most, hopefully, many people are aware of the story. Um, Uber kind of flamed out in grand fashion. It was really a, a crazy thing. So the story goes that Uber has uh, somewhere around 50,000 drivers. I don't know if this is all their drivers or a subset of their drivers. Anyway, they lost the database. That database contained uh, some pretty sensitive information, driver's licenses and and, and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it was stolen. And so what, what went really weird after that was that uh, GitHub subpoenaed Git, I'm sorry, Uber subpoenaed GitHub for the IP, the list of IP addresses that accessed a particular GitHub page. And at the time, there was a lot of speculation and rumor about what the heck that was all about. And as it turns out, uh, the some, somebody in Uber had uploaded a config file that contained, I'm assuming it's a config file, that contained a key that allowed the database to be stolen. And so apparently... The uh, the forces that be inside Uber were trying to do put on their uh, Sherlock Holmes hat and go track down uh, the who done it using the list of IP addresses from GitHub that accessed this uh, key. Now I will say I have no clue exactly what this key is. There's they're really obtuse about that point. I don't know if it's an SSH key or if it's I, I don't know so. Anyhow, could it have been Rick Moranis running around looking for, you know, it could have been, it could have been, I mean, 
whatever. You are so getting me off track. Just not, because I'm making references to movies released in the early '80s. Not tonight, man. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, the, I think the bigger story here is that uh, this is not a uncommon problem. Nope. There are, and as I understand it, GitHub has, you know, a, a fairly robust process where they try to go and look for, uh, you know, look for passwords and and. Um, API keys and stuff like that and, and notify people. But, you know, one thing that has come out uh, is, is that there's a lot of automated crawlers. And, you know, this whole story reminds me a lot of back in the day, Johnny Long wrote a book or series of books and a bunch of blog posts about Google hacking, where you could craft really interesting Google queries to find all sorts of neat things like passwords and you know, web pages that got indexed that shouldn't have been. And it feels very similar on GitHub, where you can do searches for people's login credentials and other things that are hard-coded into code that they've posted up on GitHub. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, maybe there's a book deal in this for somebody. <laughs> but, you know, the I think the uh, I, I think the the takeaway is to look at your development process. And, you know, I, it, I, don't, I, mean, I can't imagine there's a ton of well, I guess Uber does, right? Never mind. I was going to say something really dumb, like not a lot of not a lot of companies do this, but I think there's a lot of companies um, that do this. Yeah, I think there's a lot of companies that do this. So yeah, go talk to your developers. Make sure they're not doing this. Put it, you know, somehow work it into the development process where, you know, they segregate out this kind of information from what gets uploaded. Well, you know, yay cloud. Well, that's true. But I think this, you know, is part of secure development lifecycle. Yeah. And knowing how you're handling your code. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to be fair, once again, and this is a common, common problem, developers don't think security typically. They just don't. They don't. It's not apparently how their brain works. No. No. And I mean, they turn off their AV and then they upload the passwords. But, you know, this kind uh, of... I'm sorry, by the way, I would just like to apologize to all the developers I offended. That was a joke. It was not serious. Mostly. Anyway, go ahead. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, you're Continue. not going to apologize to, you know, the AV vendors you insulted? Just the developers? Correct. What, what about the developers of the AV? That's a really unfortunate position. <laughs> anyway, if you don't kind of keep an eye on what your developer is doing and teach them this stuff, you're going to have this kind of stuff Absolutely. continually slipping out into the world through your fingers like greasy fish sticks. They're just going to fall out, and then bad things will happen. So moving on to our next story, which comes from CSOonline.com. The title is Five Steps to Incorporate Threat Intelligence into Your Security Awareness Program. I learned a ton out of this from this article, by the way. Um, I mean, a ton. And I'm trying to find the exact quote, but I'm going to paraphrase because I can't find it. And it basically says that uh, threat intelligence has has identified every single attack uh, before it happened, and how it was going to happen, and who was going to be targeted, and how you know how they were going to be targeted, and therefore we should incorporate threat intelligence into our security awareness program so that 
when our threat intelligence program identifies that the Syrian Electronic Army is going to come after our director of marketing by sending them an email at 6 a.m. in the morning, we can go to the director of marketing and have him or her uh, be ready and you know resistant resist the attempts. So uh, it's a really innovative idea. What what say you? I'm still sitting here dumbfounded. Threat intelligence. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. I'm just reading the article. Yeah. So I'm going to quote from the article as well. For example, and I'm quoting now. For example, when IDG, the parent company, was attacked by the Syrian Electronic Army, threat intelligence predicted the attacks, defined the attack vectors, and identified the countermeasures that, countermeasures that should be implemented. So, this article, although the first part of this article doesn't actually match up with the second part of this article, which is kind of funny, uh, is basically saying, and again I'm quoting, awareness programs should incorporate threat intelligence which provides digestible products of continuous adversary monitoring, organized research, and threat analysis. The result is a timely and actionable information about the likely attack vectors and targets of your potential and actual attackers. This intelligence can be made compelling and relatable to audiences seeing similar attacks in the news. So, you know, I have to say, and to take off my silly drunk cat for a second, this really hit home with the book, um, uh, The Signal and the Noise. Right? Yeah. You know, where, where in, in, in hindsight... Well, we we should make the point first. Go ahead. The, the The point is, if threat intelligence were this good at predicting attacks, um, clearly the bad guys are doing something incredibly wrong. Uh, the threat intelligence vendors are far better than anyone has given them credit for. Uh, oh, and, and, and three, if you're waiting for threat intelligence to tell you what the attack is and then deploy the countermeasures as this article states why haven't you already deployed those countermeasures why are you waiting until threat intelligence tells you somebody's about to do something uh, you know i i'm of two minds on that i can i can understand the point they're trying to make however i think there is a signal in the noise kind of argument here that says yes it's it's very reasonable to go back and look, per, you know, prior to an attack and see, you know, the see the signal amongst the noise that you should have picked out. But you know, any company of any reasonable size can't chase after every single, you know, they they can't go down every single rat hole that is going to pop up. And you know, you should, like you said, you should be doing due diligence. But I do think there are probably some things. If you had really actionable intelligence, you knew that the Syrian Electronic Army was going to be attacking you next week. There's some. Prob- How would you know that? Well, the, I, how is I, that viable? I, no, I, I'm I'm suspending disbelief, right? All right, for Carry a second. On. I'm sus- Carry on. so let's just let's just assume that you have perfect information that the Syrian Electronic Army is absolutely going to target you. I think that would prescribe some actions that you could do to help defend your organization. However, um, you know, you're not going to have that perfect information. Wouldn't, shouldn't 
you already be in the state of assuming you're going to be attacked by the Syrian electronic army? I mean, unless you're willing to degrade operational capability. In other words, for a short period of time, I'm going to turn off something that I wouldn't normally turn off. Wouldn't the countermeasure that you put in place be there supposedly, in theory, already anyway? What are you going to do differently? This is my problem with this threat intelligence concept of trying to predict an attack. What are you going to do differently? This is the same problem with attribution. What are you going to do differently? Uh, you know, I, and, and if you're following bad threat intelligence to do something differently, what are you not doing as a result? What is that distracting you from? Right. Aren't you better off looking at what data you have that's most likely to be attacked and defending that data from all comers? Whatever. You're like Mr. Pragmatic tonight. <laughs> You're Mr. Lit. That's what you are. <laughs> I had a cranky day. I'm sure. <laughs> today. But, I, you know, the rest of this article actually has some interesting, like, reminders of stuff, right, from a security awareness standpoint. But I just feel like this article had a whole bunch of FUD put together by threat intelligence vendors about, look how awesome we are. We can predict that bad guys are coming at you. When I just don't think that's that's real. I, I don't... I, you may, Maybe for a, a very narrow sector of the economy that might make sense. And, you know, I, but in general, I think you're, I think you're spot on. And I, I also think, by the way, again, I, I happen to work at a very large company, like a very large company. And, you know, the, 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 the battleship turns very slowly. It, it's a very large investment to, to do things. And so you have to be very strategic about what you are going to do in terms of, you know, even awareness training. You know, it is when you, when you have half a million people, you don't do that in a week, right? That is, that is, it, it doesn't happen like that. And at the same time, you know, you, you kind of are, you're being attacked by everybody. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, maybe, it, maybe it makes a lot of sense for a really small company or a parking garage, right? You know, <laughs> maybe in that context you can, but, uh, you can, you can, uh, spin your chair around and tell Joe to, uh, you know, not open that other email he just got. <laughs> and I, you know, I believe that there are threat intelligence, if there's threat intelligence folks out there who are listening to this, screaming at their podcast playback device of, hey, we are broken into these forms and we see these attacks and we can warn people. I have no doubt that there are, there are folks out there on you know, the defense side who are able to monitor chatter and information of certain groups and know who they're about to hit. But I think that is a five percentile coverage at best of the industry. And if that is your reliance, if you're if you're hoping that your threat intel vendor just happens to be monitoring the right group at the right time, and that's what you're relying upon, you're missing ninety five percent plus of your attackers. Yeah, so, I mean, which basically says you have to. Yeah, you you need to do your due diligence. I mean, you need to be right. protecting your your environment. It's, and so this is the rough part, right? Because a threat intel vendor could come to you and say, "We have stopped all of these attacks," but that's out of context, right? Because you don't know how many attacks they missed. Yeah, right. We're we're watching all these things, and we know when they're about to do this, that, and the other thing. Great. You nobody can tell you what they're not watching, right? So to the threat and tell vendor, they think they're doing awesome 
work, right? They're doing God's work there, and they're helping their customers. And maybe, you know, they believe it. It's true. And to a customer, they're like, yeah, great. We, we, we've got this company out there who's trolling the underground looking for people talking about us. So we've got that. I just don't think anybody – there's nobody – maybe short of, you know, nation state level monitoring of all everything complete take stuff who could tell you with any degree of certainty, even half of the attacks are coming at you before they come at you. You know, the other thing I've been thinking about is, you know, in my, in my never ending quest to become an economist is that, you know, economic theory would say that the success, you know, even if, threat intelligence vendors uh, come up with a way to be highly successful, it's going to be short-lived because the adversaries will adapt, you know, through things like disinformation, misinformation, and, you know, obscure, obscuring their tracks and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Um, I do know that there are a lot of people who, who really do believe they derive a lot of value from their threat intelligence vendor. I will also say that part of our problem is that threat intelligence, if you ask, you know, 10 people what threat intelligence means, you'll get 10 very different answers. So, you know, we, we also have a, a, a challenge of terminology and scope. So, yeah. So, I mean, was there more to this article that you wanted to talk about? No, not really. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I guess what, except to say that we we often talk a lot about the technical aspects of attacks. But you know, I was um, was talking with my good friend Bob, and um, you know, he was he was telling me a story from a couple of months ago about a breach that resulted from a help desk scam, right? And, you know, that that's not a technical problem, right? This is, this is good old-fashioned social engineering, and he wanted me to pass along to our, uh, our listener population that you know, don't, don't ignore that threat, right? Because you can have really robust controls and if someone can call up your help desk and convince them to you know to help them out it's all for naught so you'll you'll be in the news anyway so what you're saying is your help desk should be less helpful you know it's unfortunate but that is kind well, of a, a a necessary side effect yeah one of the stories that I'm going to talk about is this duality or this tension between customer service and security Right, right. And rigid process versus empowering customer service reps to deal with a quote-unquote angry customer. Right. So uh, so I guess with that, let's let's go ahead and move into that story. Yeah, this is one that actually uh, kind of a last-minute addition to the show, so I'll kind of tee it up and run it through it here. But it was um, – this isn't a, a corporate thing, but it was a really interesting walkthrough of an individual who got badly owned uh, overnight. And uh, it's from The Verge. TheVerge.com. It's called Anatomy of a Hack. And it's uh, about a guy, uh, Partap Davis, uh, who overnight, somebody completely owned all of his social media, all of his uh, 
basically email accounts, his Bitcoin, and lost about $3,000 overnight. And it was pretty clever. Now, this guy is not your average, you know, random user. He actually tried to do the right thing and really tried to have everything set up. He had two-factor set up for Gmail. He had all sorts of various authenticator stuff set up for various uh, accounts. And it's it's a very interesting long article, but um, this all started with somebody breaking his initial email at mail.com. And the theory, though we don't know for sure, is that mail.com had some sort of hole in the password reset capabilities and that there was a known underworld exploit out there to go after mail.com that was potentially unpatched at the time. That's M-A-I-L, not M-A-L-E, right? Correct. Thank you. Got it. Yes. Um, And it's not manpages.com. That's where you go when you want to learn things about Linux commands. That's Oh, yes, that's right. Right. So, first thing the bad guy does, and and they don't know who did it. They never. They still don't know. Is went after this particular victim's mail.com account. Somehow broke it, reset the password, logged in. We don't know exactly how, but once they did that, they then started to go down the path of all this other stuff, and very smartly got everything they needed in the course of just a couple of hours. So once they got in, the next thing they did was go to AT&T to take over the person's phone number. Um, so went to AT&T.com, did password reset, uh, which sent, of course, the secure link down to the mail.com account, which the bad guy already owned. Once inside the account, had all the information, called up a customer service rep and at AT&T and had all of the phone calls forwarded now to a burner number out of Long Beach. So, um, at this point, now any phone calls coming into the victim's phone is being forwarded. However, texts and whatnot are still going to the original phone. But every phone call was going to the attacker. Next, they went after Google. With Google, he had two-factor authentication set up. And the second factor was a six-digit code being texted to the phone. However, Google is very helpful. It has blind customers or sight-impaired customers. So Google has this handy little capability of, instead of texting you, it will call you and verbally read you the numbers. And since the bad guy had access to all the phone, uh, inbound phone calls, that's what they did. So instead of having the second factor texted, he did call forwarding and had the accessibility call and read the number of the phone. At that point, they can now reset the password. And at that point, now head Google. Then moved on to Coinbase, which is where he had his Bitcoins. And again, uh, they used, uh, he had two factors set up. He had Authy, which is an app on the phone. But uh, once they had the phone repointed and had mail.com and a new confirmation code. In essence, just reloaded the app, reset the app, logged in again, said, nope, my app's over on this new phone now, and now could do off the account, moved under their control. So they go after the Coinbase using authy and mail.com, 
transfer the full balance out and then transferred again and transferred again and the money was gone. Um, there's more to it, but you know, long story short, even with two-factor authentication, there were holes in this process and it, it really was leveraging, in essence, services offered by these various companies to make life easier for certain users and customer service reps trying to be helpful. Uh, and one fail point at the initial email account. And that's how quickly this stuff unravels. And I think this is relevant to a corporate environment, being able to do this kind of stuff very easily. Yeah. Um, and so even with two-factor, even with all this stuff that we think is, is making us secure, you still have to think about how are ways people could subvert this? Where are the weaknesses in the system? Right. And um, it's a really interesting read-through and worth reading and thinking about. I really like the uh, the way when you scroll through the uh, the, the article, it, it kind of highlights the, the schematic of the the timeline of the attack. It's pretty neat. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it looks like a good read. So hopefully, uh, hopefully our listeners get something out of it. <laughs> so anyway, I just came across it today. I think one of our listeners happened to tweet it out, and I should be giving him credit, and I forgot who it was. So I suck. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll find out who that was and give him internet points later. So uh, our next article also comes from CSO Online, and the title is "Drive by Attack." relies on hacked GoDaddy accounts. So, uh, pretty clever deal. This is this is an attack called domain shadowing, and what it essentially involves is that is the attackers, through a variety of different mechanisms, gain access to the control panel, the the GoDaddy domain control panel of victim domains. And, uh, and, you know, rather than doing the really noisy thing of like repointing the main website, all they do is add subdomains for the domains. So, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they may add, uh, you know, www2.whatever. And, and then they have that subdomain in turn do a redirect to a, uh, a, a server hosting an exploit kit. And the idea is that, you know, when they are social engineering people with through emails or whatever, it's, you know, it is a very legitimate looking domain. You know, the root domain is, you know, an established recognizable organization. And, and so, you know, that may help it get through web, you know, web proxy or web filters and other, you know, other things like that. So, uh, pretty, pretty clever and difficult to detect if you're the organization that's this has happened to. Uh, you know, it kind of it really points back to the need to have a good handle on your your domain account, right? We've seen over and over and over again, and we continue to see accounts, and and usually this results in um, some some really big nasty. Uh, you know, a domain takeover like we've seen happen quite a lot. Um, but, you know, for a lot of reasons, it's very important to have your domains hosted at a registrar where, you know, number one, you have confidence 
that the domain registrar itself is going to get hacked and that you have the ability to properly secure your account with two-factor or what have you. And, you know, perhaps some sort of third-party monitoring for making sure your DNS records are being munched with. Yeah, again, though, um, that's a difficult thing because if they're adding A records, you know, it's unless you're able to do zone transfers somewhere else, unless, you know, unless you're supporting zone transfers for some third party to do an inspection, which I guess could, could happen. I don't know if that's a common yeah, thing. I, I'm trying to think. Of, there were some services out there. You know, we don't typically talk vendors on the show, but um, I do know that there's some DNS monitoring ser- services out there to track this kind of thing. I don't know how effective they are, but it's probably worth looking into. Yeah. I mean, DNS is such a, you know, such a powerful avenue for attack. And it's very, very quiet if you don't know about it. Right. Especially if you're... If your zone files are off your network environment, somebody could break those and repoint traffic, and you would have no idea because everything looks fine on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially when you've got uh, cached records out there and time to live. A lot of people set three days on their zone files. And so you might have three days where you think everything's fine. Right. Looks Um, good to me. Yeah. So, you know... I do know that there's some services I remember playing around with that have various points out on the net that are, you know, pinging inbound, checking DNS from various locations, that kind of thing. Um, maybe worth taking a look at. I just, I do think DNS is one of those really vulnerable services that that we probably don't spend enough time thinking and worrying about. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. All right, our next story is, uh, boy, carrying on with the theme of CSO Online. Uh, insurance comp- uh, sorry, insurance firm Stay Secure fined 175,000 pounds for unbelievable credit card hack. And boy, you know, this seems like it would just be totally impossible since aren't they using chip and pin over in Europe? Oh, that's right. Chip and pin doesn't work for card not present transactions. Shh. Oops. Oh, so, and by the way, uh, you know, Apple Pay makes for card not present fraud real easy. It makes the fraud side easy, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it does a pretty good job of everything I've read. It does a pretty good job of protecting your transaction, but it makes makes the job of a uh, of a of a mule, money mule pretty easy. Your mom does a good job protecting oh, my geez, transaction. Whatever. <laughs> Mr. Kellett. She's going to stop listening to the show now. Or maybe not. We'll be down to 23 listeners. All right. So uh, so, so the deal here is back in 2013, some attacker uh, managed to install a JavaScript uh, backdoor on the website of this company, Stay Secure. And apparently they're... Uh, I th- they're a, I think a travel, I believe they're a travel insurance provider. And, uh, and, and so what this backdoor allowed the attackers to do was, you know, essentially have their way with the company's database, which of course contained unencrypted credit card numbers and CVV numbers and, you know, whatever else you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And so the unbelievable part that was mentioned in the title comes from the, uh, the head of the ICO, which is the, I think it's the Information Compliance Office, if I'm not mistaken, in uh, in the UK, and uh, they this 
organization Stay Secure did not have a process for patching its systems. And the attackers at the time leveraged a three-year-old vulnerability in the JBoss application server. So, you know, it's the thing that struck me the hardest here is in this day and age, there are still organizations out there that struggle with things like patch processes. And we, we, I think we generally take it for granted that it is out there, but you know, this is a, I think this is a cautionary tale, both from a consumer standpoint, but also from a, you know, from an organizational standpoint that, especially in larger organizations, a lot of times they're very autonomous and some different parts may not have quote a patching process or even your vendors may not have a patching process. And so you, you you know, this is a, this is a difficult problem because it's, it's really hard to understand who specifically, unless you're going to go off and do your own pen tests of, you know, of all of your business partners and whatnot it's difficult to know where you stand and where these kinds of weaknesses are. But, you know, this, again, highlights some really fundamental bad hygiene still existing out in the industry. Sure. There's a whole bunch of people, you know, look at patching as a risk. It might break something. Oh, especially, and I, and I do want to, I'm going to go there, right? Especially with these application servers. Yeah. Um, you know, the Oracles and the JBoss. I have not had a lot of firsthand experience with JBoss, but I know a lot of the other big, you know, big heavyweight uh, applications. It's, it's, a, it's miserable to patch those things. Well, I, I've definitely heard talk of, of folks also who are struggling with, you know, just cleaning up Poodle because you've got to patch the application server in a pretty radical way. And, you know, when you've done a lot of heavy development, there's a lot of testing, regression testing to figure out what's going to break. Right. And it's not as simple as just throwing a patch on there. But at the same time, you can't just ignore it. Absolutely. You know, you, you've you got to build this stuff with the mindset that you're going to have to patch. I mean, look at what we're going through right now with SSL. Yeah, I was just about to say, if yeah. there's one thing I've learned, it's that we need to dump SSL and just go back straight HTTP. Well, it would make, you know, uh, DLP a lot easier. It would make uh, IDS easier. Less load on, on, on load balancers. So, so there's, there is a, there is a theory that says, you know, one way to dramatically improve the safety of driving and reduce crashes is to install a sharp spike in the steering wheel that's pointed straight at the driver. I predict an early uh, huge spike in deaths, and then followed by a good drop off, <laughs> a significant drop off. That's right. 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 Uh, so, and then also a strengthening of the genetic material left in the gene pool. Ouch. So, um, yeah, SSL is anyway. I didn't mean to just derail your. Well, no. I mean. Point. The funny part is that, you know, this is one point I make. Great, you've got HTTPS turned on. Uh, you haven't done anything to inherently secure your site. You've just made the attacks against it encrypted. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, the, the little <laughs> right. lock icon means right. all, all sorts of stuff, right? 
So it's one thing that drove me crazy when Google said that things sites that have HTTPS are going to be ranked higher. Why? That doesn't make okay. So their data in motion is more secure, granted, but that doesn't make the site inherently more secure. No, I I, th- I think one of the I mean to be perfectly honest, one of the really big threat vectors that um, I, I interpret SSL as addressing in in the commodity space is is you know, effectively traffic altering. You know, so man in the middle traffic altering your your ISPs doing ad insertion and you know the, the coffee right, shop cause, attack because that never happens over SSL. Well, <laughs> not not, in, not until your PC manufacturer right uh, installs a root cert, you know, for for everything. Uh, but so anyway, back to this insurance firm. So they didn't patch JBoss. That was the initial unpatched vulnerability that the bad guys went after. Right. And the, and, and the insurance or the ICO said, you're stupid. Here's a 175,000 pound fine for right. not patching. That's right. Patch your, patch your crap, kids. As well as incompetently securing data in the database and not detecting these errors until it was too late. Uh, you know, I, I do have to wonder... How much did stay secure save by not having people okay, it's stay un- sure, stay sure, stay sure? I'm, sta- I'm sorry, stay sure. Drunk um, boy, whatever. I, I I do wonder how much did they save more than they were fined? Ah, uh, uh, that's an interesting question. Well, now you got to factor in the bad press and loss of business. But there are any- but there are people who will say there is no such thing as bad press. True. I think Bill Cosby would disagree. Uh, well, wait a wait a year, and we'll see. <laughs> there might be room for Jello again. <laughs> yes. Uh, anywho, um, that's an interesting question, and that is the that's. And I don't mean this in a sort of disrespectful way, but that is the game executives have to play, right? Weigh that risk versus the cost versus the likely outcome. On all security decisions. <laughs> somebody, somebody just stumbled over a llama Borghini. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> Sorry. I, you know, I hadn't listened to that podcast, by the way. I wasn't sure where it got into the, into the show. <laughs> just the, the thing about that joke, and if you don't know what we're talking about, Jerry told a really bad joke. And so it was, a, it was on the head end of what, 106, 107? Uh, 107, yeah. And so as soon as you start the show, there's the joke. Like, no no, no opening, no nothing. Just that's the first thing you hit. It's kind of jarring. It's kind of shocking. It's kind of like walking on your 87-year-old grandmother naked. It just, wow, you weren't ready for that. It's edgy. I like to think of it as edgy and whatever. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, also moving on to an, another story that involves really bad hygiene. Oh, go ahead. You got more? No. Nope. No, no, I was I was just motioning oh, okay. to carry on. Hillary Clinton ran Has bad hygiene? Uh well, bad cyber hygiene. Oh, oh, oh. cyber. Where's the tip jar? Oh. Fuck in the tip jar. So this one comes from Huffington Post. That's number 2 for Huffington Post. Uh Hillary Clinton ran a homebrew computer system for official emails. Now Jerry, this 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 seems suspiciously like a political story. 
Well, it absolutely is a political story, but it is an interesting parable because I think we, many of us can relate to this, can't we? So, uh, so this, and, and I'm going to skip ahead because this kind of, uh, this kind of goes to the point, right? Well, Well, let's frame this up, right? So she was supposed to be, in theory, using State Department email and email system. Correct. Instead, set up her own MX and her own mailbox and her own server at home with her own domain. Apparently at her house. Right, at her own house. Right. Right. ClintonMail.com, I believe is what it is. Yeah, I've never heard what what domain it actually was. I think it's ClintonMail.com, if I'm not mistaken. Huh, okay. Um, And use that instead for official business. Yes, that is the, that is, uh, that's apparently what has happened. And, and so, especially for those people who are not in the U.S. and maybe those in the U.S. who are not really familiar, there is a requirement for official business, official government business to be, uh, you know, to be discoverable and, you know, be provided upon request. And yeah, it's so, like the Open Records Act. Uh, yeah, the, right. So all government, all non-classified government, Everything eventually must be public, right? Available, right? And so, uh, so one of the, the 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 deal here is that there's a pretty nasty political brouhaha going on about the uh, what was it the Libya was it Lib- the, Benghazi Benghazi the yeah the, the Libyan yeah the uh, the consulate or the, the ambassador was killed right right amongst and, along with three others. Right. An attack on our on our uh, embassy in Benghazi, Libya. Yes. Right, and so uh, so there's a you know there's there's obviously pitchforks and torches because you know, there's lots of allegations flying around that you know it wasn't the the threat was downplayed or or whatever whatever right. I'm not going to get into that point, but the, the Congress is trying to get records about what you know uh, about all this information. What and, did she know, and when did she know it? Exactly, and oh well, apparently. Her email uh, has to come from a different place because she was not using the official email system. And, you know, it was, uh, it's also kind of an interesting uh, joke because, you know, for a long time, it was a, it was a bit of a may-may where she was always seen with her stupid BlackBerry sending emails. Wow, we're never getting hired by BlackBerry now. Yeah, well, anyway... Um, so, so, so the other interesting thing is that the other story we have comes from theguardian.com. There was a ambassador to Kenya named Scott Gresham who was fired. And one of the reasons he was fired, or one of the cited reasons for him being fired, was that he used his Gmail account for official business, for official State Department business. And so, so he's, uh, you know, he's obviously kind of all bent out of shape that, hey, I was fired for, you know, for this and there the boss was doing the very same thing. How, you know, how hypocritical, how hypocritical is that? Um, you know, this isn't intended to be a big government thing, right? I, I think to me, I, and I suspect to many of us, we've wrestled with, Cases where the executive teams have wanted to go off and do their own thing for convenience. 
And I think this kind of underscores the difficulty that we can sometimes have. And I will also go on to say that, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting and I don't know what, I don't think there's necessarily anything behind it or, or any deeper meaning. Right. But the state department keeps having to shut down its email system because they can't get hackers out of their network. So here's the question. How secure do we think this mail system was? Well, let me ask a, let me ask a, let me answer that by asking a counterpoint. If all, all right. of her emails have to be public record anyway, does it in the end does it actually matter? Time matters. Well, when they become well, public fair, record. That's a fair point. If they're in the middle of sensitive negotiations and sensitive discussions. Yeah. And I would imagine there's probably some process by which certain emails or certain documents can be marked as classified, I would imagine. However, I don't know how uh, how that would happen now that they're off system. But hell, you know, if I'm if I'm a general and I'm making notes in my notebook, that notebook could become classified. Right? So the medium doesn't necessarily matter from a classification standpoint. Right. But so here's the problem. And and I'm not saying the State Department has their shit together. Clearly, they don't. But obviously, email security is not a core competency of Hillary Clinton. And I'm assuming somebody probably built this up for her. I don't think she's a Linux hobbyist, I'm assuming. And, and I don't know. But so depending on the consultant hired, it could have been set up very securely or it could have been set up very badly. Yep. Uh, and in some cases might have been more secure than what the State Department had going. I don't know. Uh, but in general, my gut is that an individual doing this probably wouldn't spend the same amount of time and attention as a dedicated IT team. Probably. Yeah, and if you if you consider, you know, let's just take a step back and say, you know, consider the case of, you know, this this wasn't. Let's say this was not the State Department. It is your or your company. You know, you if if you are sued, you are liable, or you you have to supply records, right, that are requested. And sometimes those records might not be on a system that you manage because if your employees are off running, you know, running off doing this kind of stuff, that makes it really difficult for you. You still have an obligation to go collect that data. That's true. I think ultimately, I'm not in support of whether you're a State Department employee or a private company employee that you go off and do your own mail system for work business type purposes. Right? And people will disagree with this, and that's okay. But ultimately, that business owns that facility. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing work on behalf of that business, they technically own that communication. That's right. If if you don't like it, don't don't work for that business. But you don't get to have both complete privacy and lack of transparency and also work on behalf of that business. Part of what you give up when you go get that paycheck is your business gets to watch your email. Uh, if you don't like it, don't take that job. Yeah. So if I were 
a leader in an organization and I had an employee who said, I'm not going to use company email. I'm going to go use my own email for official business. I would not allow that. Now, if they have a legitimate concern, I certainly would hear them out and, and, and work to address it. But ultimately, that would be a non-starter. So if they want to do it on their own for their own stuff, hey, rock on. But as a business, because – now, mind you, Secretary of State's a different position. But in general, if that individual who's in that role were to quit or get run over by a bus or move to North Korea or whatever, I may need that – You know, I'm hiring them to do a job. I may need that information. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a business tool. It's a, you know, it's a business facility as you described it. And, you know, for, for so many reasons, more than we can possibly cover in a, in a podcast, it's just a bad form, bad idea to, to do this. So, and that's by the way, not even talking politics at all. I wouldn't care if this was Democrat, Republican, libertarian, independent, socialist, whatever. Um, I don't think it's a good idea. Agreed. Agreed. So, however, in this case, who knows? It maybe through happenstance, this email ended up being more secure because <laughs> it wasn't on the hacked all to hell State Department servers. But that is a matter of coincidence, not a matter of policy. Exactly, exactly. So that uh, that is the stories we have for this evening. And uh, as usual, we appreciate you hanging in with us. If you are in the Atlanta area and going to B sides or even if you're not in the Atlanta area and going to be sites, we really hope we have an opportunity to to catch up with you. And uh, if if uh, you know if nothing else, look look for us. We'll I, I suspect we'll be wearing our fancy defensive security swag, and maybe we'll have pens and stickers and magnets and stuff to give away, or bag for you to take. Yeah, please. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, anyway, thanks again, and we will uh, we'll talk again next week. Hope, again, hope to see you Saturday at B Sides Atlanta, and uh, take care. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Bye. Shoulder replacement surgery already, huh? Well, it's part one of becoming a cyborg. Somebody has to haunt Sarah Connor. Similar thing happened to a reporter a couple years ago. Yeah, but that's reporters, so, you know, they can burn in hell. The eye razor, you know, how how the analog razors are, are dead, and we need internet-connected razors with apps, and the iCar. I was really disappointed that the iCar didn't get announced today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.